restaurants are slow to change because everything's made on the smallest margins. I get so many bad Yelp reviews that they're like, this was so expensive. And I'm like, really? Because this is some highway of robbery shit. You're listening to season two of Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurant kitchens. I'm Katie Osuna. In our first season, you heard me talk a lot about my experience as a woman working in fine dining restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area. I had a lot of conversations with my friends and coworkers about gender roles and femininity in kitchen hierarchies. We would have all these conversations and talk about all these topics related to the kitchen, but there was one theme that everyone brought up independently. I didn't ask about it or anything. It's just something that seems to be weighing on the minds of everyone in the industry. The restaurant wants to make money, so the way frustrations with owners and their decisions. Pay them minimally and, you know, and have them work maximum hours. Like Fuck tips. The tipping system. It's outdated. It doesn't make sense. How little we get paid. The higher the stars go, the lower you get paid. Where's the incentive for a cook who... And more about how little we get paid. Exhaustion. Not being able to pay rent. Like, where's the incentive there? It all came down... We need to cut labor costs. Because what? That's an easy fix. Why would you put yourself through so much... To one theme. Torture, I guess you can call it. And still get paid nothing. <laughs> Money. You're listening to Overhead, our second season, all about the financial and economic challenges of restaurants. Economically and financially, the restaurant world is incredibly complicated and challenging, and it's been that way for a really long time. There are systems in place now that make it incredibly hard for people in restaurants to be successful. So, in this season, we're breaking some of those down. Each episode, we sit down with chefs, cooks, owners, and others working in restaurants to talk about how they are approaching a tough economic situation in a way that's different than the norm. And we're going to kick this season off by going somewhere that has a special place in my heart. Boise, Idaho. I wish I had printed up a picture of you so I can see you in front of me. This is my friend, Michelle. My name is Michelle Kwok. Boise has a special place in my heart because it's where I'm from. I even got the Idaho State outline tattooed on my arm. So, needless to say, I'm a fan. But four years ago, my partner Ricardo and I moved away from Boise because we wanted to have the experiences only a big city could bring, like working at a three Michelin star restaurant. So, back to my friend Michelle. I was ready to leave fine dining and was looking for something a little bit a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more rustic. And boy, is Boise it. Boise is like way quieter, way more rustic. She and I worked together before I left Boise, and she kind of went the opposite direction. So I was there in New York for a few years. The first restaurant was called Brayburn Restaurant, and then I went to Jean-Georges. And then I was at La Bernadette for a couple months doing a stage. And then after that is when I went to 11 Madison Park and was there for a little shy of two years. Michelle was killing it working at all these big-name institutions in the New York culinary world. But right before she was going to start a new job in New York, her husband Ron got a job offer in Boise. So they went out to visit. So we come out here 
December or January of eight years ago. And we're here for 24 hours. When we leave Boise, Ron's like, oh, I I love this city. I love the company. I want to go back there. I'm like, were we just in the same town? Like I, when our airplane took off, I thought I would never set foot here again. But then they moved to Boise. We came out here and I cried. I thought this place is so small. The food scene definitely saddened my heart a little bit, but it, it, it also forced me to start cooking. And back then, Boise's food scene was a little monotone. Boise's not short of pizza shops. It's not short of traditional steakhouses, taco shops, and uh, pub food, that's for sure. But there was one restaurant popping up that was trying to do things differently. Yeah, $80,000 to open. And my partner and I did 100% of the work ourselves with, you know, the help of friends and family. This is Ramey. My name is Ramey McManus from Kin Restaurant in Boise, Idaho. He's one of the owners of a new restaurant in Boise called Kin. But five years ago, him and his partner Jay were opening State and Lemp. Ramey and Jay really bootstrapped the opening of State and Lemp with a minimal budget and a lot of help. They didn't even have me cook for two or three weeks, so they didn't even know if I could. Including who they hired for their chef to cuisine, Chris. My name is Chris Kamori. I was the former chef of a restaurant called State and Lemp, and now I'm going to be the chef and co-owner of a place called Kin. I was new in town. I didn't really know many restaurants and, and food industry people, and probably four or five people at the market told me about, are you interested in doing more cooking? There's this new place opening up. And uh, so I rode, rode my bike over and met Jane Ramey. And pretty much the next day I was putting carpet in the place. It was pretty clear to everyone in the local Boise food scene that State and Lemp was going to be different. There weren't really any other restaurants like it. And at the time when we opened, there weren't many, or if any, tasting menu brick and mortar spots open. The menu theme changed every month. The team was using local ingredients, modern plating, and interesting techniques across the five to seven dishes that were on each menu. Though the style of dining was happening in bigger cities across the U.S., it was really new to Boise, which distinguished them from others for sure, but also caused a lot of challenges in the beginning. Opening State Lent, the conversation about menu pricing was really what, what will the public tolerate? And we kind of fell on that that $100 mark. And then we figured out what's the difference between 100 and 105. So the price difference of what we were doing versus the other restaurants in town was, was quite dramatic when you just saw it as like a one-time price. When they wrote the first article about us, you know, new restaurant opens, menu is $100 a person. You know, there was all sorts of people saying, oh, nobody can do that. No, you're going to fail within two months. I was like, that's fine. I failed at a lot of different things in my life. I don't know if I was more afraid of success or failure at that point. People tell you that. You're kind of like, all right, fuck it. Like, let's just do whatever we want then. Go guns blazing. People were noticing. They were written about in magazines and the newspaper because they were really new. Though some people were put off by the idea or didn't necessarily understand what it was, it was really exciting to others, like my friend Michelle. I just took a break um, from working and also wanted to get back into cooking. I took a trip to Korea for, I don't know, a month. Oh, yeah, you were there. <laughs> Michelle and I worked together at a nonprofit <laughs> doing food service good. job training um, for refugees. We, we would do special catering and fundraising events, and Michelle would always make these beautiful pastry creations. 
And about a year after I started working at the nonprofit, Michelle left. Oh, yeah. And we took a trip together to visit her family in Seoul, South Korea. (laughs) I came back from that trip, was wrestling through what I wanted to do, but kind of wanted to be back in food. The thing I liked about fine dining was the precision and the creativity, the artistry of food. And Ron kept telling me, well, there's this restaurant down the street. And it was an issue of the edible magazine that had a picture of one of the dishes from State and Lemp. And Ron showed me that, and I read the article, and I was like, okay, fine, I'll check it out. Did a, uh, a stage there, and I think what I loved about it, what was different was it was such a relaxed environment, a comfortable environment. And I remember the first day, one of the first questions they asked me was, okay, so if there was a zombie apocalypse and you had one kitchen tool to take, what would you choose? And I was like, oh, blowtorch. <laughs> so it, it was just, it was a good place for me to be, and it was a good healing place, I guess, for me to be and to experience fine dining. So we opened in October of 2013. Pretty much immediately, you go through that honeymoon phase of just being a new restaurant, everyone's interested. And then we hit the holidays pretty quickly. And so that That helped and that gave us, at the time, it was almost like a false sense of security. And I didn't realize that once school gets out in June, half the town disappears on the weekends. So our difficult time was that first summer. Yeah, that we definitely had some nights where we were cooking for six people, eight people, like not even halfway full. Every seat counted under a magnifying glass, really. What it really took was word of mouth for us. Partly because the price went, but also because it was a little bit hard to explain in, say, a newspaper ad or something like that, what we were doing. It took word of mouth to get around because the people that were going to tell their friends about it were excited about what we were doing. And so they were going to tell people that they knew were going to be excited as well. It was really hard to explain what they were doing to people in Boise. They did get some national attention. Chris was nominated for a James Beard Award three years in a row. So that definitely helped with that word-of-mouth advertising. But many people in Boise didn't have that wider context of what a tasty menu is or why someone would want to spend three hours at dinner. So in the beginning, they tried to ease people in by giving them what they expected, fancier ingredients. At the beginning, we were just kind of, we were almost going for a value in ingredient by what we thought was expensive. And we thought like, okay, if the guests, if they think that this place is expensive, we'll at least give them ingredients that cost a lot on our end. And that's kind of the value of the place coming in. What we found was it just wasn't possible for us to sustain that. This question of a perceived value of a meal isn't just a thing in Boise. It's a matter of debate regardless of where you are in the US. It's really hard to understand all the little things that go into the price of a meal, especially a tasting menu. So we're gonna break it down by taking you to dinner at State & Lump. For two people at State & Lemp, the cost was $210. If you leave a 20% tip and there's a 6% tax, the total comes to $267.12 for two. So how much of that $267.12 was actually going to the restaurant versus paying for everything else associated with the meal? If every seat was full and every guest had wine pairings and essentially tipped 20%, we would bring in roughly $4,000 in a night. Mind you, this includes times where we were actually doing more than five services a week. 
and this is also art sales and depending on coffee and you know little things that happened. They were open four days a week, sometimes doing a second service on a Saturday or other special events. So if we break it out to a regular one service, completely full evening, take out the tips that go to the front of house and the taxes they were making. It would roughly come out to about 2,500 bucks a day that we would bring in. The first and most obvious cost associated with restaurants is the food that's on the plate. Each menu had between five to seven courses, so the food cost was right around... Roughly $450. And then the cost of the drinks. Um, so that was about $200. There were five people out in the front of house pouring your wine, bringing you food, each making about $80 that night without the tip. Plus six people in the kitchen, each making somewhere around $95 that day. With all of their wages and salaries for the day, that cost the restaurant... About 900 bucks. We were taking 900 to to $1,000 a day, but it's not actually that that we're taking because that still has to go to all the other things. All those other little things are the kinds of things that people just really don't think about. Menus, linens, candles. Rent, heat, and power, and... It's insurance, it's licensing. Payroll taxes, workers' comp insurance, liability insurance. Credit card fees, permits, liquor licenses. Attorney's fees, good accountant. And all these things just add up like crazy. And that doesn't include when, great, the dishwasher broke down mid-service. So after you add all that up, what's that leave them with? Around $250 in profit a night. Meaning out of the $210 that you spent, after all the costs of running the restaurant, there was $21 left over. In percentage, that's, that's about 10%. So it's not incredibly high. And that $250 essentially is what paid my partner and I. So there was not a lot of money to be made. Restaurants, especially tasty many places, are not particularly profitable businesses. To put it in perspective, a company like Apple has 40% profit margin each quarter. 10% is pretty good for a restaurant, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for error. And when you also have to pay back investors, that $250 a night disappears really quick. You know, there's just so many different things that go into the costing of a meal, not just how much the food costs. You know, when people walk in, they say, oh, I could buy that steak and go and grill it for $14. Why is it $38? Because oh, I got 40 employees and I got this giant restaurant that cost a million dollars to build. So that's why. But we won't be selling any $38 steaks. They'll be $105. <laughs> but you get seven other courses that come with it. <laughs> and you might not even get a steak. So the team at State & Lemp had to figure out how to control these costs while still giving the guests this perceived value. The first way to do that was to go after the food costs. We've figured out really unique ways to, to use inexpensive foods to make them incredibly fancy or make people feel like they're incredibly fancy. For us, it's kind of a, I don't know if game is even the right word. No, it is kind of a game. <laughs> And I don't know how this is going to be perceived with me saying this out loud. But it's like, how thrifty can we be? And it's not for the sake of being thrifty. The experience is also telling the stories of who we're working with. The farmers and then the way they grow become part of 
the meal and the experience that the diner takes away with them. As we met with farmers and things like that, we started to find cuts and ingredients that they needed to push more. And they were willing to kind of give it to us at a slightly cheaper deal because they needed to move it. And then we would take these things that are, were slightly less coveted by other places, and we would have to put the labor into to giving it more value through the work of it. And they had some sort of little mite that was in this carrot field, and it was kind of just, they would burrow on the outside of the carrot, and it would just give this tiny little blemish on it. But it was a lot of them. It was a whole row. And essentially they said, well, the grocery stores won't take it and the farmer's market people won't buy it because it has this blemish on it. But if you just peel through it a little bit deeper, then the carrot itself is, is still really good. So they said, if you come out and you harvest it, you can have it essentially. Otherwise, we're just going to till it under. So we took our crew out and we, we harvested about 700 pounds of carrots ourselves. And then we had all these carrots and we said, okay, well, now we have to do something with it. You know, the go-to I think is pickling and fermenting and things like that. And we did it with some of it and we were like, oh, we still have tons of carrots. So we juiced them and then that became a cocktail at the bar that was based around the carrot. And then we had this story to go along with it. So it was really cool. The drink was called uh, the moron because uh, moron means carrot in Welsh. It was great. They were able to get their food costs down to 24 or 25% consistently. But even with that consistently at a good percentage, they were still having a hard time. State and Lemp was profitable, but they were struggling with something that every single restaurant struggles with. Paying people. We'll hear more about what they decided to do after a quick break. In the spring of 2019, I helped open a few different restaurants within the span of a couple months. You know, the usual process of recipe testing, ordering, frantically working with contractors to get the kitchen built out, and then the dreaded hiring process. We were always up against deadlines and understaffed, and I didn't know how we were going to pull it off. Paired is how we pulled it off. Paired is an app where you, as a kitchen manager or chef, post shifts that you need people for, and Paired fills those shifts with vetted, qualified restaurant professionals. They match people with similar experiences or backgrounds to make sure you get someone who can handle the work you need done. At one of the restaurants I helped open, we were using three Paired pros a night to help us get through opening, and many of them were so great we ended up hiring them full-time. Paired is a great tool to give you peace of mind, whether for a, my dishwasher just called out Friday night, or a weekly shift you've had a hard time hiring for. I would highly recommend giving it a try. To get started with Paired and save 30% off your first shift, visit Paired.com slash copper or use the offer code copper during booking. That's P-A-R-E-D.com slash copper. If you like copper and heat, I think you'll also like Eating in Climate Chaos, a new series from our friends over at Bite Podcast. Bite is a podcast for people who think hard about their food. Hosted by food and agriculture reporter Tom Philpot and Mother Jones editors Kira Butler and Maddie Oatman. How are farmers, scientists, and chefs leading the charge to fight the effects of climate change? Bite's new series, Eating in Climate Chaos, will investigate the evolving tastes of our most beloved dishes. You'll hear Democratic presidential candidates discuss the Green New Deal and learn how farmers can sequester massive amounts of carbon. You'll tag along through fields, vineyards, labs, and city streets to witness our food system changing and learn how you can eat your way out of the worst effects. The next episode of the series is out November 15th. You'll definitely want to tune in. 
Subscribe to Byte on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. The majority of our cost was labor. Our labor costs were incredibly high. And I've been asked that question before, why are your labor costs so high? This was one of the questions I always got when I was at Manresa, where a dinner for one with beverage pairing currently costs $530. Why so expensive? Even if there might be a couple expensive things on the menu, that's not where the money is going. It's going to the people. Think about it. At any given night at State and Lump, there were 24 people dining at the very max, and they had 11 people working. That's basically two diners to every staff member. Plus, the kitchen staff was probably there hours before prepping everything, and that's on a completely full night. It's a lot of labor, and the people that are working are definitely not getting paid a lot for it. I mean, to be honest, I, for the first three years at State and Lump, I was only taking home $36,000 a year. a year is not enough money when you have two kids and a wife and other things to do. You know, same thing with Chris. Essentially, we saw the last restaurant as our building block. You know, we're going to make these sacrifices because we know this is not the end game. We know we need to move forward onto, onto bigger and better things. This financial sacrifice is something that is expected of people that work in restaurants, especially cooks who don't usually receive tips. It's part of the lifestyle. But it's something that the crew at State and Lemp were really actively thinking about. I never ask for what I'm probably worth. I think employers really like me because I've always been like that. But now that I am the employer and I, I want to pay as best I can because I, I don't want people to go through what I had been through before. We had really good retention for our restaurant. By the end, we had a, a kitchen staff of five people that included one of the owners and myself or maybe it was six people. But of those four, three of them had been there since the first six months of the restaurant. So they stayed with us for four years and they were great. You know, they they believed in the culture that we were pushing and the ideas that we wanted to do. But, you know, they were were definitely not getting paid as well as they should have. And we were were trying to give them raises, but it was a struggle. That goes for myself included. Like I I just basically (laughs) didn't get raises through that whole time, even as we grew. So when we stopped and thought about it, we said, okay, well, if we lose a couple of these people just due to them eventually moving on, that's inevitable in a restaurant, what do we do then? And inevitably, that situation did come up, but on a much bigger scale than they were expecting. I was getting kind of bored. And I I started asking the question, so what's going to happen when the lease is up in this building? Because that's, uh, that's about six, seven months out. And I told them, You know, like whatever happens at the end of this lease is when I'm going to be done here. And for me, I I just had to set this date. But then I feel like that was sort of like I planted a seed in other people's minds. And so then I feel like I feel bad. And I never brought this up with Chris again. Well, pretty much when Michelle was like, when's the lease over? That's my last day. I was like, okay, (laughs) okay, fuck, what are we going to (laughs) do? What do you mean that's your last day? I mean... I thought that we were done. <laughs> and then everyone was like, yeah, I think we should be done. There were quite a few conversations as we drew towards the end of our lease. You know, there was 
certainly a night or two a week where Chris and I would stay late after everybody was gone and sip on whiskey and talk about the future and talk about, you know, what we could do, not only just the two of us, but, you know, an entire team. An employee that I really cared about a lot wanted a couple of days off and asked when they could do it. And she said, the reason I need to know so far in advance is because my friend has a real job and she needs to request the time off. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean a real job? What about your job is not a, not a real job? And actually, this is a front of the house service staff, so she actually made more money than probably everyone there, me included. I was like, well, you work four days a week. You come into work at 2.30 and you leave at 10.30 every day. And you probably make more money than everyone here, including Chris, who works 80 hours a week. So what about that is not a real job? That's one of the things that resonated with me is that... So many people in Boise don't necessarily see the restaurant industry as a professional industry. They see it as a stopgap or they see it as a place where, you know, it's a college job. By paying more and by offering benefits, I think we can drive that. We can say this is an industry and make doctors and lawyers that come and spend the money respect you like they expect to be respected when you walk into their office. Then we've made then we've made a difference. The idea of restaurant work not being a real job isn't just a Boise thing, but it is more prevalent there because there are just less restaurants. For cooks, that's only a few kitchens where you can go to learn new things before you either open your own thing or go to a bigger city, like I did. I probably would do the same thing. But the problem for us in this town is that if the young, trained-up talent leaves, you're kind of missing everyone in their prime. So it's going to be really important for not only us, but the whole community to kind of raise their games as best they can so that we don't have that citywide loss of employees. And the hope is that the, the restaurants in town are all, you know, everyone's getting a benefit from it. Um, so it's, it's much more of like a communal training session, I think. So for the team at State & Lemp, they started really thinking about what the end goal was. And if one of those goals was to raise the bar in Boise, that meant giving their employees value in their jobs, value beyond a paycheck. Towards the end of Satan Lemp, we were in this really great position of, we had about six or seven dishes on a menu and we would change them every three or four weeks and we would do one-off menus and things like that. So we were going through a lot of dishes and at a certain point, you get like creative writer's block, right? or I would, and, and what was great was because we had a staff that had been there for so long and that they knew my food in and out, what we started to do was say, okay, there's five dishes, there's five of us. We were able to give them the reins to a certain degree. One of our youngest cooks, he's great and he's gonna be a really good chef. He, he started at first just, just going and we would kind of let him run with it for a little bit. And then every time we'd have to pull him back and say like, okay, man, we need to sit down because you need to understand that if you do this dish, you're taking up 50% of our budget on one dish. And he'd be like, oh, okay, you know, and like kind of rework it, you know. And then the next menu, it would come back and we would be like, all right, like pretty sure we had this conversation, but you're now at 60% of our budget. <laughs> it took a couple runs. And then he immediately started talking about, okay, this is how I want the dish to eat. And this is how, like, I want the guests to, to realize it. And then this is also why financially I made this decision. And it was like, oh, this is perfect, man. Like, you hit another level in terms of how you were perceiving these dishes. When I first started cooking and in, in the chef position, 
the finances were not my priority. As I've gotten more experience, you do start to realize that, you know, really the financials are, are floating the whole thing. They're the most important thing to look at, but it, it just kind of depends on how you, how you do look at them. A lot of cooks or any position, you don't necessarily know the reasoning for the decision made directly above you and, and you know, kind of goes up the ladder. So I think what's important for, for us as in terms of our restaurant is we are very open with our, all of our employees about how our finances work so that they understand their value. As young cooks, you learn, you know, braising, saute, you like, you learn the techniques, you learn how to butcher and things like that. But there's, there's not enough places that teach them the financial side of things as well. All of that information just helps them understand the business as a whole, and then they can find greater value in working in that place. I think it was the last service at State and Lemp is when I pulled uh, Chris and Ramey both separately aside and told them, okay, I'm on board. I mean, there there was a moment, uh, I was kind of going through a midlife crisis and I came out of a doctor's appointment just in tears and I called Chris and told him like, I I don't think I can do this. Like, this is me putting in my, my notice, whatever that looks like right now, because I don't really have a, a regular job, but you know, I don't know if I can continue this. And I continue to wrestle with, uh, or at that time was like wrestling with, do I do I want to do this? And I think what helped me to get back to this place of wanting to do it was there wasn't ever a point when Chris pressured me like, no, but you have to do this. You signed on. You said you would. But it was like, you know, I care about you and like whatever is best for you. And each of them continuing to be with me and walk alongside me and in a hard time of life. That's what makes me want to continue to be a part of Kin. Kin is the new restaurant that Chris and Ramey are opening together, with a lot of the original State and Lemp crew coming along, including Michelle. The decision came down to the fact that with a small 24-seat restaurant, there was never going to be enough capacity to bring in the revenue they needed to do all the things they wanted to do, like pay people more or expand the menu. So Ramey and his previous partner, Jay, sold State and Lemp to another owner in 2018. We definitely needed to step outside of our small space and create a larger revenue stream. In most restaurants, that means adding a bar and adding liquor. Ended up in a space that we didn't anticipate. It's an iconic Boise location on 9th and Main. It's essentially underground, but it has an open-air courtyard and patio and amphitheater. So we will have a bar. We'll have a 64-seat bar. We'll have a 30-seat tasting menu restaurant. And then attached to that, we'll have a 24-seat private lounge for those guests specifically. We will also have a patio, and then we will have a amphitheater where we can do concerts or plays or dance. Um, so we kind of have four restaurants, five restaurants in one location. You know, people see us doing this and say, wow, you know. They went from having a 24-seat restaurant to having a 6,600-square-foot restaurant. What are they going to do? What are these guys doing? <laughs> they lost it. 
It's definitely a big jump from the small bootstrap project that was Staten Lemp. It's an expensive game when you step in and play with the big boys, for sure. First, the Kin space is just so much bigger than the Staten Lemp space. Plus, it's in another building with other owners, so all construction needs to be done by licensed contractors rather than friends and family. And as usual with opening a new place, there are all the unexpected costs. You know, people tell you all the time, oh, it's going to cost twice as much and take twice as long. I never really believed it, but I don't think it costs twice as much and takes twice as long, but it costs more and it takes longer. And we also found a lot of different things in that building. The building is totally beat. The restaurant space hadn't been renovated for 40 plus years. When Jane and Ramey opened State and Lump, they did it with 80K and help from friends and family. But this time, Ramey and Chris have to approach it differently. They had to find money somewhere else. We raised $1 million from private equity partners who will own 49% of the restaurant. We own 51%, Chris and I. And we will pay that back at 8% with 70% of the profits going to the investors and until their principal is paid back, and then we will receive 80% of the profits, and they will receive 20% of the profits for the life of the restaurant, or until we buy them out. So it's a, it's a bunch of lawyery stuff. Right now, Boise is at a bit of a crossroads. For a long time, young people were leaving for experiences in bigger cities, myself included. The dining scene had a lot of the same kinds of restaurants, but now things are changing. People like Michelle are in search of a chill lifestyle and somewhere they can actually afford. And people with big city experiences are moving in and opening places. So as Boise is growing and changing, one of the questions is what happens to the food scene? Making the move to downtown, you know, we've been very welcoming to to all the other restaurateurs and they're very welcoming to us. We don't see it as competition, we see it as camaraderie. And that's been, that's been really refreshing and that's maybe one thing that makes Boise a unique space in a unique city. You don't see that cutthroat business mentality that you may see in a larger city. So people do really get excited about a new space. We used to hear, uh, and still do at times, oh, this is, this is good for Boise. But there's been a shift like, oh, no, this is this is just good food. Like, we just want to make good food. And so from both the perspective of people who work in the industry and the diners themselves, people are just coming to expect good and not good enough. Boise is a great place for for me personally and and the culture of the restaurant that we're developing because, you know, we're we're friendly. I, I would say I'm a, like borderline just too naive about a lot of the things and a lot of the goals that we want, but it does fit into the community because we do want to support each other in a lot of ways. The kin thing is not just our employees and us, it's, it's the immediate community as well. There's still a lot of quirky charm about Boise, and right now we're in this conversation of where do we go from here with food culture? What does food culture here look like? We don't want to become the next whatever city. We don't want to you know, do something because this is the trend that's happening somewhere else. But that's, that's Boise culture, you know, come as you are. Thanks for listening to our first episode of Overhead, the second season of Copper and Heat. If you haven't already done it, hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. Then you can keep up with all of our new episode releases throughout the season. Oh yeah, leave us a review while you're there. 
This season, we're going to be exploring all sorts of economic and financial challenges in the restaurant world. Stay tuned for episodes about investing, food delivery services, staging, tipping, and so many other topics. Also this season, we've introduced Family Meal, these special mini episodes that are released every other week for you, our listener, to share your thoughts and stories. So if you have any stories about learning the finances of restaurants or what you think the future of restaurant business models are, or any other thoughts about this season's theme, just record a voice memo on your phone and send them to hello at copperandheat.com. Overhead, the second season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Ricardo Osuna. Our editor is Rachel Palmer. A special thanks to the Eavesdrop Podcast Network and Boise for letting us use their studio. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat, or check out our website, copperandheat.com. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening.